Amen. Well, we come this morning in our Bibles to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we are, we're still in verse 2. Um, a friend of mine who said that he, he's, he's beginning to wonder if I'm not just going to preach through 2 Timothy syllable by syllable. Um, it feels that way. Uh, but, but my plan is next week to get on to a larger chunk, uh, Lord uh, willing. But we're doing our final sermon in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, over the past few weeks, we have been admittedly walking slowly through the opening greeting of this letter. And as we've been going through it slowly, we've been seeing the richness of this greeting and its significance uh, for the rest of the letter. As we've noted, this greeting is in one sense uh, a formality. Paul is just following the standard pattern of first century Greco-Roman letters. There's nothing extraordinary in this greeting, in and of itself. But, as we've been seeing, Paul is retrofitting this formal standard and packing it with significance. That, mean, that means that from the very first words of this letter, Paul has been intentionally and purposefully ministering, counseling his protege Timothy as he faced a barrage of challenges and sorrows. Remember, Timothy here is in the onslaught of hardship in his ministry. Uh, Timothy has done well. He has pastored the church in Ephesus faithfully. He is still a young man, a young man called by Paul to be that first settled pastor of the church that he planted in Ephesus, this most Roman of cities, this church that existed in the shadow of the cult of Artemis, this church that existed in the midst of the rise of false teachers that were coming in the wake of Paul's ministry, those false teachers that Paul addresses in 1 Timothy. But Timothy has been faithful. He's persevered. He's, he's pressed on. He's faithfully preached the gospel. He has installed office bearers. He has strengthened the church. But now, maybe three, four years after 1 Timothy was written, Timothy is, is, is almost breaking under the weight of the pressure that has come upon him. The assault of the false teachers has not let off. The pressures of the culture seem to be winning the day, and it all seems to be getting the best of him and bringing him to a point of tremendous discouragement. And Paul writes this entire letter to encourage his child in the faith, to encourage him to focus on preaching the Word of God, to remember the wonders of the gospel that he preached, to strengthen the people of God, by reminding them of the overarching purposes of God that transcend this momentary affliction. But everything that Paul says in this letter, 
he really condenses down and packs into the first two letters, into this greeting that he gives to Timothy right at the beginning. Do you remember a few weeks ago we saw how Paul introduced himself in verse 1? An apostle, he says, of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. It's a statement that encapsulates Paul's own sense of absolute wonder when he considers the grace and mercy of God that had brought him out of his sin. That sin that had had him standing there holding the jackets of those who stoned, um, uh, who stoned Stephen, approving of his execution. This grace and mercy of God that had brought him up out of that sin, rescuing him from that life of violent persecution and installing him not just as a Christian, but as an apostle of the church. There's a statement we saw in which Paul reminds Timothy that he understood his whole life as wrapped up in and directed by the will of God. Nothing in his life an accident. An apostle by the will of God, saved by that promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And now Paul imprisoned by the will of God for proclaiming the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. All of his identity wrapped up in the sovereignty of God. It was an encouragement to Timothy to not let Paul's imprisonment add to his own burdens, but it was also a challenge right from the off. Paul setting himself up as an example of godly contentment, even in the midst of the greatest difficulty. But then, as we have just more recently been looking at in verse 2, Paul adds what is essentially a prayer. Paul prays that Timothy would know the grace and the mercy and the peace of God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is, as we have said, essentially the theme of the entire letter encapsulated in one sentence. The, the big idea of this letter that Paul wants to drive deep into Timothy's heart, the anchor that will keep Timothy secure as he is tossed and buffeted by these storms of life. What Paul wants Timothy to remember is that everything that he has received from God in Christ is the gift of God's grace and mercy towards him. These are these little words, grace, mercy, and peace, they aren't just little cliched niceties that Paul adds for a little flourish at the beginning of his letter. They are substantial reminders of the true context, the true sphere in which Timothy lives, in which he is experiencing this hardship. Grace and mercy, two sides of the same coin. Mercy, our sins washed away by the blood of Christ our guilt removed before God by the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Grace, the abundant blessings that are poured out on believers in Christ, so that we can say, Ephesians 1.3, that God has lavished on us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. These two rich and deep concepts coming together 
to describe the security of the believer in the favor of God. But it's here, with this final word, this last of these three little words, peace, that all of this is now summed up, encapsulated, really brought to its head. It's here with peace that Paul reminds Timothy of the end to which all of this is moving. Sin is a fundamentally peaceless thing. Sin constantly promises us peace and rest and the fullness of joy. It promises, really, the promise of life that Paul referred to in verse 1. Right? No one sins because they think it will make them less happy. There's always a promise that comes with sin that only if we do this, then we'll be happy, then we'll be satisfied, then we'll be fulfilled, then we'll be at peace. Or we can put it another way, there's always an accusation that comes with sin. God is withholding something good from us. But somehow the commands of God are burdensome, and if only we broke free of them, then we would find life and we would find rest. It's the lie that Adam and Eve fell foul of in the Garden of Eden, believing that the command of God was unnecessarily restrictive believing that accusation of the devil that God was in some way insecure and afraid of what would happen if they broke free from His constraints. But like with all temptation, like with all sin, it's a lie, it's a hollow deception that covers the gruesome reality that sin will only ever take life and will never give it. That sin will only ever consume the one that falls foul of it, and never serve them, that sin only ever promises life but delivers death. It promises rest and peace but only ever delivers bondage and slavery and a restless wandering. It is, I think, perhaps best of all encapsulated in that curse that God put upon Cain in Genesis 4. You remember the curse that came upon Cain after he had refused to yield to the command of God and rather killed his brother than yield to the words of God. And God had said that for his sin he would be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. His determination to live life on his own terms and not God's resulting not in freedom in which he could eat and drink and be merry, free from the constraints of God's law, but rather resulting only in this restless wandering, a forever peacelessness. It's the image of Cain, ever seeking a home but never finding one, always looking for a place that will comfort his weariness but never finding it. It's essentially what we see repeated in Israel's condemnation to wander the wilderness for 40 years after they refused to listen to the Word of God and enter into the promised land. 
It's interesting, isn't it, that God didn't command them to sit and wait for 40 years. But in one sense, that would have achieved the same end. Their faithless generation would have died out, and they would have crossed into that land of promise. God could have had them camp by the Jordan for 40 years, seeing that land of promise, but never being able to enter into it. But He didn't. For 40 years, they were condemned, like Cain, to be restless wanderers on the earth, walking constantly, nowhere to stop, nowhere to call home, nowhere to be at peace, that constant wandering, living out the consequences of their sin. Instead of the peace and prosperity and living in the land of promise, that land flowing with milk and honey, that evocative image of a place of goodness, a place of peace, Instead of that, just this restless wandering, fugitives on the earth. It's the very thing that Isaiah 57 describes. Verse 20, the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. We use that little proverb, don't we? We throw it around usually about something inconsequential, about the need to go and mow the lawn again. No rest for the wicked, we say with a little smile on our face. But you understand, in Isaiah 57, that is a pointed and packed statement, a deep and profound reality that there is no peace to be found for the wicked. They are like the tossing sea. In fact, that's an image that we see coming up throughout Scripture again and again, isn't it? It's no accident that Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 depict the sea as the place of rebellion and chaos. In fact, in Revelation 21, when John beholds the new heavens and the new earth, he says, and the sea was no more. Right, you understand John isn't telling us that in the new creation there will be no large bodies of water. John isn't making a geographic statement about the new heavens and the new earth. It's not that he's saying there will be no saltwater fish to be eaten in the new heavens and the new earth. What he's saying is that symbolically sin and its chaotic restlessness will be put away once and for all, and in this new creation, there will just simply be peace. That's been a part of the proclamation of the gospel since the beginning. It's maybe even, I think we could say, been the heart of the gospel since the beginning. It's the promise of Genesis 3.15 that the Redeemer would crush evil under His foot. The promise of a world in which sin and its chaotic restlessness is put away and peace returns to the world. I think we could say it's even before that. Do you remember when Adam and Eve felt the conviction of their sin against God? What they tried to do when they felt that inner restlessness, that peace that suddenly they were afraid of God, what did they do? They, they made themselves coverings with fig leaves. 
It was sin upon sin. They tried to cover their sin by proud self-reliance. As they felt that in a restlessness, they sought to find peace through their works by doing something that would cover them. It didn't work, of course. But what did God do? Well, He clothed them with a better covering. He clothed them with animal skins. He did what they could not. He covered their sin and their shame, and in doing so, He gave them peace before Him. This peaceful nature of the gospel is so integral to our understanding of salvation that it is given by God to be written into the very rhythms of our lives. It's why God commands us to take one day in seven as a Sabbath, one day in seven in which He commands us not to work, one day in seven in which He commands us not to employ anybody else, one day in seven in which we are simply to rest, one day in seven in which we are simply to be still and know that He is God. It's the promise of the gospel written into the rhythm of our lives. It's the very message that Jesus left with His disciples. In John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. And my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's the very gospel that the apostles proclaimed. In Acts 10, verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. It's the prayer that Paul has here for Timothy, that he would know peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord that he would understand, that he would grasp, that he would internalize this peace that is his from God the Father in Christ Jesus his Lord, that regardless of all that is going on, regardless of the chaos and the rebellion, regardless of the raging of the sea, as it were, that surrounds him, that Timothy, knowing the grace and the mercy of God, would be at peace in his soul. This peace, it only comes in and through Christ Jesus. It is, we could say, that natural outflowing of grace and mercy. You see, when the Bible talks about peace, it's not just talking about an absence of trouble, though it is talking about that. But more than that, when the Bible is talking about peace, it's talking about wholeness. It's talking about completeness. It's talking about soundness that can only be found when we are reconciled to God. 
you understand that is why the command to observe the Sabbath has a twofold rationale. In Exodus, we are told that we must observe the Sabbath because the Lord is our Creator. It is written into who we are, into the very fibers of our being, that just as the Lord made the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh, so must we made in His image work six days and then rest on the seventh. But in Deuteronomy, we're told that we must observe the Lord's day because, of, because God is our Redeemer, that He is the one who has brought us up, Israel out of their slavery in Egypt, but us out of our greater slavery from sin, and He has brought us into the freedom of His kingdom. It is that rationale that beats into our heads that we can rest on this day because all that we are and all that we have by creation and recreation has come to us in and through Christ. And the Bible talks about the peace of believers. It's talking about this wholeness, this soundness that comes to us by virtue of our redemption. It is, as you probably know, that concept that's described in that Old Testament word of shalom, a word that we don't have a direct equivalent for, but it's speaking of that whole-orbed well-being that restoration of our very souls. You see, we can find a rest of sorts on this earth. It's interesting, we don't have time to go into it this morning, but that Cain, the one who was condemned to be a restless wanderer on the earth, is the one that we read of in Scripture as building the first city in Scripture. What can be more antithetical to wandering than to build a city? Nothing speaks of permanence like a city. Cain's rebellion continuing. We can imagine, though, that Cain found a level of rest in that city. That there would be nights on which Cain would maybe walk around the city and say to himself, take rest, you have done great things. We know something of that, don't we? Sometimes it's in the wickedness of Cain. Like the parable, we can build great barns for ourselves, and we can take rest in all of our earthly achievements and say how well we've done in this life. But maybe in a more innocent, mundane way, we can find rest for ourselves. We can go on vacation. We can sit by a lake and unwind. We can retire from work. We can give ourselves over now to more restful pursuits, no more checking our email constantly, now going out without a phone to fish for a little while, and it's restful. Of course it's restful. But that's not what the Bible's talking about when it speaks about peace. It's talking about this deeper peace, this wholeness, this completeness that can only be found when we are reconciled to God. Augustine put it like this. He said in a prayer, you have made your, us for yourselves, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's it. 
That's it in a sentence. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And an essential part of being human is that we are made in the image and likeness of God. It is the very distinguishing mark that raises humans above the animals. Now, we are like animals, undoubtedly. You put a human and an animal on a dissection table, and they look remarkably similar. You put them side by side. You map their genome. And you could be mistaken for saying with Desmond Morris that humans are just naked apes. But Genesis 1.26 tells us, unlike any of the animals made on the sixth day, humans were given uniquely the dignity of being made in the image and likeness of God. It was a distinction that elevated humanity and spoke of its special relationship, its close relationship with God, hinting even that the goal of our lives, the true fulfillment of our lives, was to be found in union and communion with the God in whose image we have been made. But of course, the devastating effects of sin ravage that image and alienate us from God. And so this vital core part of what it means to be human is unfulfilled. Or to put it another way, that core part of what it means to be human remains restless, made for something that it can never attain. But in Christ, by the mercy and the grace of God, we are reconciled to God. We are brought back to God, and our restless hearts find the very thing that they crave apart from Him, and we find our rest in Him. We find our shalom in our reconciliation with God in Christ. It's what Paul describes in Romans 5. He says, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have been brought back to God. Christ, our great propitiation, has reconciled us to God. In the great mercy of God, all of our sins and guilt washed away, forgotten, as the new covenant promises put it, so that there is now no more record of our sins in heaven. In the great grace of God, all of the blessings earned by Christ imputed to us, all of those blessings of the heavenly places now lavished on us in Christ. By the mercy and grace of God, we are brought up out of the living death of our sin, out of the restlessness of our sin, and we are reconciled to God. And in communion and union with God, we find that peace that we long for. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Christianity. 
all of the little idols that we run to to find peace, all of the little self-help schemes that we run to to try and find peace, all of the sin that we indulge to try and find peace, all of it now put away because in Christ and in Christ alone, we have been brought back to God. Just think of how this must have been a balm to Timothy's troubled heart. Here was the world around him losing its head. Here was the society that he had grown up in now turning violently against him and the Christ he loved. Here was the church he loved, racked with division and turmoil. And here, in this little word, peace, Paul reminds him of the grander gospel context in which he lives. He's reminded of the end to which grace and mercy are moving, reunited with God while the earth might be filled with heartbreak and sorrow. He had peace with God. It was the heavenly context in which the earthly was played out. A great reminder by Paul that none of these things could truly rock him, could truly undo him, because now he had peace with God in Christ. It's something that we are quick to forget, isn't it? What troubles your anxious heart? It could be a world of things, couldn't it? Concern over the way the world is going. Concern over the way America is going. Concern over things in your families, concern about money, concern about health, concern about career. But at the root of it, it is that you have forgotten the peace of God that is yours in Christ. Think about how Paul describes it in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is it that results in the surpassing peace of God guarding the hearts and minds of believers? Read it properly. It is not the prayers and supplications. What it is that gives the surpassing peace of God that guards the hearts and minds of believers is the fact that the Lord is at hand. It is the fact that in Christ you are free to draw near to God And so you are able to pray to Him. What results in the surpassing peace of God is the presence of God in Christ, the reconciliation that we have with Him that enables us to free ourselves of anxiety and be at peace regardless of our circumstances. Now, I know that is not an easy lesson to learn. We live in a world of the senses, and what we see and hear and taste and touch, it tells us that there's a lot to be anxious about. We live in a fallen world that at its core is marked by that cane-like restlessness. It 
It's what drives that constant state of panic that marks your news source of preference. It's what fuels racing minds that think of everything that can go wrong. Paul knew that. His life of discipleship to Christ was one of almost constant heartbreak and sorrow and suffering. R.C. Sproul once said, my life didn't get hard until I became a Christian. I think Paul could add his loud and hearty amen to that statement. Before he was a Christian, Paul was on top of the world. He He had power and prestige and wealth. He had a family. He had to to have gotten to the, the, the heights of Judaism that he got to. But after he becomes a Christian, he loses his family. He loses his peer group. He loses his prestige. He loses his significance. Even now, as Paul writes this, sitting in prison, watching helplessly as the gospel that he preached is renounced, by so many that he thought had become converts under him. He says, all in Asia are turning away from me. Paul knows that there's a lot to be anxious about. He knows that it's really easy to be restless and peaceless. But here in this prayer, he comes to Timothy, and really he gives, it's a prayer for Timothy but it's in a sense also a command for Timothy and a command for us as well by way of substitution. Set your mind on Christ. Remember the context in which you live as a Christian. Remember how the grace and the mercy of God has brought you back to God. Remember how in Christ you have been made at peace with God and therefore now can experience peace. You can't just switch it, but you can cultivate it. The only way that you'll get to this point is by fixing your eyes and hearts on Jesus, constantly beating it into your head as Martin Luther put it. So read your Bibles not just to tick off a box on your reading calendar, but read your Bibles to understand more of this great redemption that is yours in Christ. Memorize Scripture so that you have it with you in your head and in your heart, so that you meditate on Scripture all the day long. Listen attentively to the preaching of God's Word. Come here on the Lord's day with hearts that are ready to hear the voice of God speaking to you as His Word is read and preached. Come with expectation to the Lord's table. Observe the Lord's day. Use the means of grace that God has given to you. It won't be a magic wand, but it will cultivate in you a greater understanding that in Christ you have now been brought near to God. And so you are able to find rest for your weary soul. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus and for all that he has done for us to bring us back to you. Forgive us for our anxieties. Forgive us for our faithlessness. Forgive us for our wandering. 
Forgive us for our listening to the pundits of this world who do not know the peace of Christ. And help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on Him and on Him alone and to be steady and sure as we walk through this world of trouble. Oh, Lord, I pray for this congregation. May your grace and mercy and peace be something that is deep and tangible to them, something that they know, something that guards them. Lord, may your Spirit continue to sanctify them for the glory of Christ.